God, we thank you so much for this morning, the opportunity we have to worship you. We need more of you. That's what we need. We don't need more of ourselves. Would you move in this space and pull down the barriers and the kind of plaque on our hearts and our souls that we have allowed to build up and speak to us and teach us and maybe even correct us a little bit, help us Help us to be more like Jesus and to live your way, the better way, especially as it applies to our relationships. So thankful for your word as we open it up. I pray that you just bless this time we have together. In Jesus' name, amen. It's not just what you say. That's the title of today's message. We've taken the last couple weeks and we're like week three, three deep into this series called People Problems. Uh, we all have problems, and most of our problems are people problems. So we've been looking at this better way. What does God say? He designed us for relationships. It's an important part of his design for us. It's where we discover his purpose for us. It's so important not to live isolated. If you're living in isolation, you're living a weaker life than you could be. Uh, your future is going to be nerfed more than it should be. What God has designed us for, or he's designed us to be in relationship with him, but he's also gifted us as a, as a part of his plan for our lives, relationships with each other. And so we've been looking at how do we live better in relationship with each other, more like Jesus tells us to. And this applies not just if you have a marriage or significant other, it also applies to all of our relationships, no matter what kind of relationship you want to apply this to. God's word is amazing and it applies to every area, aspect of our life. It teaches us in Timothy that it's all given to us. It's all useful for our encouragement, our correction, all this incredible stuff. And so apply these things to whatever relationship you have. But week one, we looked at how David and Saul's relationship was a disaster. Saul's trying to murder David, and David chose not to take his life and chose a better way. And um, we listed a bunch of things about that define that better way and how we can live in it. And then last week, we had the oh-so-fun topic of resentment. Did you giggle your way through that one the whole way through. <laughs> it was such a tough topic, but so important because uh, there are people in this room that are still holding on to resentment. Uh, there are people across all of our campuses and all of our locations that are holding on to resentment, and it's not punishing the person you think it's punishing. It's just hurting you. And the consequences of holding on to resentment spill out and they affect the people we love most. If you're resentful of your wife, it's going to hurt your kids. If you're resentful of your husband, it's going to hurt your kids. If you're resentful, it always spills out and has an effect. And what we dish out because of resentment hardly ever equals the original offense. And we would be so much better to just talk about the real issues together Today we're talking about communication, and it's a big part of our relationships. And I don't want to like over-exaggerate, which Jen tells me I've been known to do from time to time. But uh, I do want to say that if you have people problems, probably most of your people problems are also, or at least amplified, by communication 
problems. I don't think that's a stretch. I think that's probably pretty accurate. There have been a number of people that will come to me uh, for marital advice or to talk about their relationships, and they'll be like, I don't know what happened. Have you ever thought that or said that? We used to be so close. Now we feel so distant. We used to be so in love. Now I don't think he loves me. I don't think she loves me anymore. Uh, most of the time, it's not because the love has stopped. It's just because the communication of the love isn't landing. So over time, over time, I'm trying to say I love you. I'm trying to say I love you in my own way because of my own upbringing. But it's not landing because they have their own way and their own upbringing. And call them love languages, call them whatever you want. It's just missing. Just missing because of how we communicate. Now we have been communicating since life began. <laughs> Most of it was a lot of crying early on, right? But you have been learned, you, you learned since, your, since, since, since you took your first breath, you have been learning, even when you didn't realize it, that you communicate, that you have to communicate to get what you want. Need a diaper change? You gotta, I mean, I'm sure nobody here now like is thinking this, but like at, at one point you, you had to cry and let people know you were uncomfortable and upset, you were hungry, you would cry, you'd let people know you were uncomfortable, you upset, mom, dad come running with a little bottle full of formula, jam it in your mouth, okay, I'm good, right? Like you cry because you got gas, please don't do that if you got gas right now. Like, right, like, so, you know, like you learn early, you got to communicate to get what you want. The problem is, sometimes we revert back to this idea that communication is about just getting what we want. And when that happens, it's kind of like a basic, I, I, wanna, I don't want to say immature, but immature way of communicating. And when we never leave that and grow, in our way of communicating with each other, we never really deepen our relationships and we never really are living the way God wants us to live. When we just communicate what we want, it causes damage. I remember um, my mom being in the nursery one time. I, don't, I grew up in the Skook. I don't know if you know that in this church. And I, I remember we bought this puppy, such a cutest little puppy, this little amber uh, colored dog. It ended up being like the best dog we've ever owned. This thing was like epic pet. We loved it to death. But I remember when we got this little puppy, we picked it up. I was in high school, and you ever try to come up with a name with a bunch of kids and parents all with their own opinions, and then like, does this happen in your house? Everybody, th four of the five, get on the same page with a name, and then that one person who I'm pretty sure just wants attention, is like, that's the worst name ever, I veto it, right? And it starts the argument all over again. Well, that's the kind of thing that's going on as we're trying to pick a name for this puppy. And everybody had settled on um, this name Amber for this puppy. And I was the one who was like, I hate that name. This has got to be a better name. I don't know what, I forget what I wanted to name the dog, but I'm pretty sure it was like some epic, really cool name that everybody, everybody should have agreed with me from the beginning. 
so epic that I can't remember it. But like, I remember coming in and like, I, I needed to convert somebody to my side so I could get my way. I need to communicate well so I could get what I want. So I, I went back to the nursery. My mom was in the nursery sitting on the floor playing with this little kid and it's, it's got two doors and there's been times where we have places, parts of it sectioned off so you can't see the whole room like for people nursing or whatever. And I remember popping in and leaning on the door and being like, yo mom, we cannot name this dog Amber. And she's like, shocked. I'm like, all right, good. I caught her off guard. Let's get her while she's off balance. So I doubled down. I'm like, Amber is the stupidest name I ever heard. Why would anybody name anything Amber? There's so many better names out there. We could pick any, literally any name. Are you with me? And she's now gone from shock to horror. And she's like, frozen. And then all of a sudden, she just goes, right? You know that? Moms, you got those moves. Like, you know, you start swinging fingers around and look out. <laughs> I knew you got to watch when mom starts swinging fingers. So she meant with all that nonverbal communication, you better get your butt down that hall and I'm going to be there in one minute. And it is not going to go as you hope. I could read all that in just the small finger wags of my mom. So I got out of there and went down, and she's like, what is wrong with you? You are an idiot. There's a mom in there nursing her newborn baby named Amber. <laughs> I am so guilty <laughs> when it comes to the topic we're talking about today. <laughs> so please, though, that this one, like, I'm mostly preaching to me. And uh, I just am open mouth and insert foot, but the damage spills out to everybody else. And when we just communicate to try to get what we want, we're not thinking or praying on a deeper level. We're not trying to understand. We're just blurting it out. It causes damage. And my hope is that maybe we can start to have some conversations in our relationships after this that aren't just trying to get what we want out of those conversations. Maybe we could move from trying to win the fight with your spouse to searching how to be better partners with your spouse. Maybe we could try to move past just trying to get what I want out of work to the more fulfilling thing of being a part of some, something great and some sort of movement. It's not just what we say, but what we say is very powerful. In James chapter three, it kind of gives us this whole picture of how powerful our words were, are. If you never looked at this, it'd be a great passage to like deep dive into on your own. But it says, it says, anyone who is never at fault in what they say is perfect. I'm so glad that there is nobody perfect here, aren't you? In fact, there are no perfect people allowed here. Perfect people don't exist, really, but if you think you're perfect, it's probably not the place, right? Like, 
I love that he starts by saying, here, before I get into this, you're all in the same boat. Nobody is perfect. If you can keep your tongue in check, you can keep your whole body in check. We all make mistakes. But then he goes on, he says, we put bits into the mouths of horses to make them obey us. We can turn the whole animal or take ships, for example. Although they are so large and driven by strong winds, they are steered by a very tiny rudder, whoever the pilot, wherever the pilot wants to go. Likewise, the tongue is a small part of the body, but it makes great boasts. Consider what a great forest in Canada is set up. No, just kidding. Is set on fire by a small spark. The tongue is a fire. Listen to this. A world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole body. Sets the whole course of one's life on fire. And it itself is set on fire by hell. All kinds of animals and birds and reptiles and sea creatures can be tamed and have been tamed by mankind. But no human being can tame the tongue. Isn't that incredible? The words you say are so powerful. In fact, in Proverbs 18, we're going to jump to the whole chapter in a second. Verse 21, it says that the tongue has the power, check this out, of life and death. How are you communicating? It has the power of life and death. Have you ever heard someone speak the words, I hate you, to you? Or say something like, you'll never be good enough. You'll always be a failure. You'll always be ugly. You'll always be alone. If you've heard words like that, maybe, unfortunately, growing up or now, somebody who's trying to get at you, you know how soul-crushing and life-sucking the words of others can be. On the other hand, if you've ever had somebody look you square in the eyes and say something like, I'm so proud of you. You are so gifted. Man, you are so valuable and important to me. Have you ever had somebody like look you in the eyes and say, I love you no matter what. I know you just blew it. I know you're disappointed. I love you. I care about you. I'm here for you. I'm not going to go anywhere. I'm with you. Have you ever had somebody say words like that? See, on the other hand, while words can be just destroy life, they can also be so life-giving. Which why are you going to choose to use your words in your relationships? To usher in death, more destruction, or to give and build life. Here's the big goal for today. It's one big goal. We'll give you some tools at the end. The big goal is don't be a fool with how you communicate and talk. Proverbs 18 is a passage full of all kinds of wisdom and I just want to go into some of the earlier verses. It's a great chapter to study, too. It says this. It says in verse 2, it says, Fools find no pleasure in understanding, but delight in their own opinions. You know anybody like that? Don't look to your side. Straight ahead. Lock the eyes in here. You ever spend time with somebody like that? They're a treat, aren't they? <laughs> Fun to talk to. <laughs> 
Like they're just never really listening. They never really care. They're not really about understanding you or your perspective, let alone the words you're saying. And they're so quick to just blurt out whatever they say. You have to keep repeating yourself because it never registers with them. They just keep going on to the next thing they want to say, the next thing you want to say. That's what a fool looks like in communication. And I have to look at this and be like, I'm guilty of that. If the big goal is don't be a fool, then I have to seek understanding a person. I have to seek understanding a situation. I have to seek understanding what they're actually saying to me and listen more than I just speak and try to win my point. If the big goal is don't be a fool, then I need to seek understanding. And I need to also understand that if and when I am being a fool in how I communicate, all I'm doing is making it worse. I may think I'm trying to win the fight, but I'm just making it worse. Even when you win, you lose. There's some dudes that wanted to say amen to that, but didn't. They held it in, good self-restraint. It goes on, it says, the lips of fools in verse six and seven bring them strife. Their mouths invite a beating. The mouth of a fool the mouths of fools are their undoing, and their lips are a snare to their very lives. Now, we don't have a ton of time this morning, but I want to talk you through the entire story of Esther. Because Esther is an incredible picture of a high intensity, high stakes, huge consequence and repercussion kind of story, and in the middle of that, she uses incredible wisdom to communicate. Now, it's all lamped up for Esther, and what's so convicting about this story for me is that when things are all lamped up for me, that's when I am the worst at how I communicate. Anybody with me? You come home from a really bad day, and you, the way you communicate spills that bad day onto everybody you just met at home. Your kids are excited to see you. Your wife's happy you're there. And then within two minutes, they all wish you were still back at work. You ever? Like, because it's amped up. And that's when I think we're our weakest at communicating. When the pressure is really high, we, we jump to conclusions. We say the wrong things. We don't say them appropriately. We miss our timing. All of it goes downhill and that's where we're most vulnerable for being a fool with how we communicate, at least for me. Esther's completely different. The stakes could not be higher. And yet, she uses, though she was scared, such incredible wisdom to communicate. I gotta give you the backstory of Esther. And if it's a 10 chapter book, it's short chapters. So we're gonna be here till like four o'clock if I try to do the whole thing. And so I don't want emails being like, you missed this point. Yeah, I missed almost all the points because I have 10 minutes to tell you the whole story of Esther. So go read it, dive into it. It's an absolutely incredible story, so much to pull out of it. I just want to give you a quick backstory, though, as fast as I can. This is happening under the reign of King Xerxes, king of Persia. There are exiles under his reign, Israel people, uh, Jewish people, God's people that have been taken from uh, their, their homes and are now living under Persian rule. And 
you have King Xerxes, who was this narcissistic, kind of like very flamboyant, very into himself and his riches kind of king, right? And so you have this guy starting off the book of Esther doing like a 180-day parade, and he's just like flaunting all of his incredible stuff, saying, look at, look at all this amazing stuff I have. He caps off this 180-day parade with a seven-day banquet, although when I say banquet, that's kind of not fair to the word banquet or our idea of banquet. I think the feeling, I don't know how to communicate this in a way that um, we would all understand in Schuylkill County. Um, let's just say like, it's like a seven day kegger, right? Like, they're like, just not like a bush party kind of kegger. It's like a have it at your home. You know what I'm talking about? I know you do. Some of you right now are thinking, I gotta return that. You know, like, get the, get the deposit back. You know, he's, they're having just this completely insane, drunken, lavish booze party. King Xerxes and all of his nobles and all the people he thought were important to him, they're having this like blowout party. Queen, his queen is named Vashti and she's like, wow, the dudes are getting carried away. Let's get all the women together. And I'm not saying they were having tea and crumpets, but I think they're probably way more under control than these guys. A seven-day binge they are on, and at the end of the seven-day, all of them probably wasted. King Xerxes has this great idea because Vashti was beautiful. He says, let's parade her in front of all of these people. Now, I don't know if Vashti knew God and where she was at spiritually. There's nothing that we know about her except that she had the strength to refuse this horrific request by her king. I don't know if I'll ever see Vashti, but if I do, <laughs> if somehow in God's grace she found faith in the one true God, I would love to say how impressive this was that she refused this insane, pathetic, awful request to just flaunt her around. Good for Vashti. But the consequences spilled out. King Xerxes is embarrassed and furious and calls all his nobles and puts a plan together and they're like, we need to put a decree out to everyone saying that women everywhere should always listen to the man. Whenever they speak, they do exactly what they say, which is how idiotic is that? Do you know how horrible <laughs> our lives would be if we just did whatever I thought? <laughs> you know, like, especially, and this is a side note, Man, our sisters in Christ have such a beautiful sensitivity to spiritual things that we should be paying attention to all the time. Anyway, Vashti is kicked out of the queenhood. They send this decree around and they decide to have a pageant to pick the next queen. They get all of these beautiful, talented people from all over the place. They come, they participate in this pageant and eventually King Xerxes picks Esther, this Jewish exile, to be his queen. Nobody knows her heritage yet. All everybody knows is Vashti is now queen. Vashti was raised by her cousin, much older cousin named Mordecai. Mordecai, she was an orphan. I don't, we don't know how that happened, but isn't that hopeful? You have a orphaned exile who now becomes queen and is about to be used by God to save all of her people. 
It doesn't matter what your childhood looked like, how rough it was, or how you feel like you can't be somebody because of your setting. Anyway, Esther, she is now queen. Mordecai is sitting by the king's gates, and one day he overhears uh, two of the king's noblemen talking about how they want to assassinate him because they're sick of him and replace him as king. Mordecai gets Esther and tells the king, and Esther tells the king, and the king is saved, this plot is spoiled, and they open the, the king's books where he keeps records of all the stuff that's going down, and they record that Mordecai was responsible for spoiling this assassination attempt on King Xerxes. At the same time, kind of like another sidebar, this guy named Haman, who is about as evil as they come, is being promoted on the ranks of the nobles that King Xerxes has, and he ends up being all the way at the top of all of these nobles. King Xerxes, and then this guy named Haman. This guy's also an egomaniac, and everywhere he goes, he expects people to show respect and bow down to him. So he's going out to the king's gate where Mordecai's hanging out with other noblemen and important people uh, of the time and the day, and everybody else is bowing to Haman, and Mordecai refuses to bow. He, like, only bows to the one true God. Haman is, like, incensed by this idea Talk about resentment. Here's another picture of how awful resentment is. He starts to resent Mordecai for not bowing to him. He hates Mordecai. Instead of just punishing Mordecai, he comes up with this plan to wipe out all the Jewish people. Men, women's kids. Resentment, man, leads you down some really bad places. Such evil. Horrific. Horrific Haman goes to Xerxes, pitches a story, spins it like these people are going to be our downfall, all this stuff, they're causing all these problems. Xerxes is like, yeah, 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 just do, just do whatever, I don't want to be bothered. So they put out to Susa, which is this place in Persia this story is happening, they put out this decree about how this one day they're going to kill all of the men and women and children Israelites. Even all of Susa, it says, was confused by this decree. Mordecai gets Esther's attention. She's super scared. Who wouldn't be? Vashti, her predecessor, was just kicked out. Like now she's in there. You can't approach the king without his permission or you could be killed or cast out or exiled. She's very nervous about seeing the king and bringing anything up to him. And Mordecai gives her this little speech. It's so incredible. It's in the end of chapter four. He talks about how, do you think you'll be spared? Like, you think you'll be spared on this day just because you're the king's queen? What if God has placed you here for such a time as this? That's a great sermon. Preaches great. It's just not this sermon. Esther says, okay, here's what I want you to do. Now, this is where I want you to lock in. She tells Mordecai to go tell all the people to pray and fast for three days. In the meantime, she's seeking God's direction and thinking up a plan. On the end of the third day in chapter five, it says she put on her royal robes, stood in the inner court of the palace in front of the king's hall. The king was sitting on his royal throne in the hall facing the entrance, and when he saw Queen Esther standing in the court, he was pleased with her and held out his golden scepter that was in his hand. So Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter. 
King Esther, what is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? Even up to half the kingdom, it'll be given to you. Queen Esther goes, hey, I want to give you a banquet. <laughs> Invite Haman. Xerxes is like, I do banquets. Oh, yeah. Like, his thing is banquet. He loves banquets. And here he's got this special banquet. I mean, she understood this king Xerxes. She gets him there. She puts on this whole banquet for them. Haman's there. He's feeling like a champ because he's the only one besides the queen that was invited to this banquet that the queen is throwing. Nobody knows her nationality or her heritage. They're feeling so good. He goes home and he's like, listen, you will not believe what's going on. Like the queen invited me, tells his wife, tells his people, tells her it's bragging about this incredible thing. And then he has this absolutely incredible moment. God's doing some stuff, right? Like when you invite God in to your relationship, he's doing more than you can see. Haman's so mad against about Mordecai, he's still planning on killing him. He puts up this big pole that he wants to impale him on. And in the meantime, King Xerxes can't sleep. And he says, all right, I know what will help me sleep. Bring me my book, you know. It's just like talk about nodding off. But as he's reading through the accounts that he was keeping, he comes to the story about Mordecai saving his life. And he says, has anybody done anything for Mordecai? Have we celebrated him or given him any kind of honor? No, it had just been forgotten for a time. So he's like, I need to ask one of my noblemen, anybody here, and as he's doing that, Hammond is walking through. He says, Hammond, come here, what would you do? I'm gonna make this really short here. What would you do if like, this guy did all this stuff, saved the life of the king, foiled this plot, what would you do? And, and Haman's like, I think he's talking about me. So he's like, I think you should dress him up in the royal robes and have a chariot and have somebody pull him around saying, this is how the king treats his people, those who are loyal to him and that he wants to honor. And King Xerxes is like, great, go get Mordecai, put him on the cart, you drag him around and tell everybody that this is how the king treats people that he wants to honor. How humiliating. Haman is mortified. And he goes and he says to his family, like, you're not gonna believe this. This is what I had to do. And right then, the king's people come and take him to another banquet. This is the second banquet that Esther had thrown. They go and meet Queen Esther. As they're drinking wine on the second day, the king again asks, Queen Esther, what is your petition It'll be given to you. What is your request? Even up to half the kingdom, it'll be granted. Queen Esther answered, if I found favor with you, your majesty, and it pleases you, grant me my life. This is my petition. And spare my people. This is my request. For I and my people have been sold and to be destroyed, killed, and annihilated. If merely we had been sold as male and female slaves, I would have kept quiet. Because no such distress would justify disturbing the king. King Xerxes and Queen Esther, ask Queen Esther, who is he, where is he, the man who has dared to do such a thing? Esther said, an adversary and an enemy, the vile Haman. He leaves enraged and comes back and finds Haman falling all over Esther, begging for his life, assumes that he had other motives. And Haman ends up on the pole that he had built for Mordecai. What's interesting, there's so much to talk about, and you can do a whole series just on this story. What's interesting is how 
wisely Esther handled this amped up communication. And it makes me wonder if maybe there's a wiser way to handle my amped up conversations with the people who mean the most to me. Is there a better way of communicating, a wiser way, maybe even a slower way? Here's a couple of takeaways because we're running out of time. The first thing that I love about this story, and if you only get one thing from this message, please get this. She slowed down enough to invite God into the circumstance. Have you ever invited God into your marriage, into your relational problems, into your friendships? They spent three days praying about this, and yet I rush into high-intensity conversations sometimes without stopping for a second. Three days of inviting God and seeking his wisdom. Three days of thinking and discerning. So here's takeaway number one. In your communication and your relationships, slow down enough to invite God into it, to think and to seek his direction. Ask, how should I be communicating this? Where should I be communicating this? God, is my heart right before you? Is my heart right in this? Is this what you, I should be communicating at all? Is there something I need to learn first? Is there a place you need to put me first? Slow down enough to think and to pray and invite God into your relationships and use discernment in how you communicate. Don't just rush to win a fight. There's something better. Don't just Try to rush to get your opinion out there. What if there's something better? What if there's a deeper understanding, something to learn, a better way to walk through the circumstance you are rushing to fix? The second thing I think is position yourself. Now, not to manipulate somebody. See, I think we're plenty good at learning how to position to manipulate. This was following God's direction she put herself in the right position to have the best opportunity to be heard and to make her plea. This was wisdom positioning her. Not every discussion should be had in the Walmart checkout line. <laughs> you shouldn't just air everything in front of your kids. There's wisdom to be had by thinking about the time and the place and the situation, don't let your emotions just run rampant in how you communicate. Don't be just pulled or sucked into a conversation that should happen at a better time, at a better place. Maybe when everybody has calmed down a little bit and the initial shock is over, don't just run into it. Use discernment and find the position God wants you to be in to have the conversation he wants you to have. And then really seek to understand the other person. Understand what they're saying by listening well. Listen for the layers and what's underneath the anger, what's underneath the fear. Understand what they're saying, but more than that, understand them. She knew King Xerxes liked to party, so she threw him a banquet. <laughs> she knew that he liked to be celebrated, so she celebrated him. 
Just small ways that we can practice really understanding. And the first one is found in James 1, and that's be slow to speak and be quick to listen. And don't let your emotions or circumstances drive and dictate how you communicate. Let God, his direction, and his wisdom for you dictate how you communicate. It's complex and difficult, and it's not even just about what we say, but our words are so powerful, and we could all learn how to communicate better. And if Esther, in such an amped-up situation, can do such a good job of seeking wisdom, then maybe we can do a better job of seeking wisdom in God's direction, even in our amped-up conversations with each other. Start Start by just inviting him in, giving him space in your relationships. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for your word. Our words, you know, we need work. We, we make a lot of mistakes in how we communicate with each other. I've made a lot of mistakes in how I communicate. We need your grace and your forgiveness. We also need your direction to help us to use wisdom to seek your guidance, to pray, to invite you into the spaces of our relationships. Help us not just to rush to win a fight or an argument or a point when there's something so much better. We thank you so much for Esther and her story and for the words of James. We most are most grateful for Jesus his finished work on the cross and through the empty tomb. This is his name we pray, amen.